Hi, my name is John Tobin from John Tobin Presents in Laugh Boston and several comedy clubs around Massachusetts and the rest of the country. And I'm taking a walk with Buzz Knight. Welcome to Taking a Walk, an excursion to converse, connect, and catch up at a cool location with some of the most interesting people you can find. Here's Buzz Knight. I'm so excited on this edition of Taking a Walk to be in the glorious Boston seaport area, a wildly cool and active place that was way different back in the early 90s when my guest was working away in this area. His name is John Tobin, former Boston City Councilor. He's currently Vice President of City and Community Engagement at Northeastern, but he's also a man with a passion and history for radio and comedy. He's part of the ongoing history of comedy in Boston, and his John Tobin Presents is a live comedy production company that produces and operates comedy shows in and around Boston and all over the country, too, including Laugh Boston. Let's go take a walk with John Tobin. John, it is so great to see you, to be taking a walk. Uh, JT, can I call you JT? Sure. Call I've you been that? called a lot worse. What else have you been called? <laughs> <laughs> Late for parties. Um, uh, never by potential prom dates. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Well, thanks for taking a walk. So set the scene where we're taking a walk here, because I know there's a little bit of history for you, and it kind of winds into how you got where you are. Yeah, we're on the concourse uh, in between uh, the inner channel here on the Boston Harbor, across from the Tea Party Museum. Uh, did you say harbor? I, I think I did, yes. Uh, <laughs> I'll never leave. And then that's probably why I didn't get a, never got a job in broadcasting. Um, <laughs> leading up to the Martin Richard Park and the Children's Museum over here, uh, which I was a member of when it first opened, my family. And uh, next to us, uh, it's not there anymore, was a boat called Light, it was a restaurant called Lightships. And it had two floors, and on the bottom floor, Dick Doherty, uh, who had had his, you know, prop, but you know, legendary comic, obviously in Boston, Cape Cod in the 60s and 70s. Um, he had had a tough 80s and made a recovery and started opening up comedy clubs. So he came in to do uh, Maddie Siegel's show on Kiss 108, and my job was, in addition to playing uh, the music came off satellite from. Uh, Los Angeles, the music of your life, 1430, big band music. Oh my God. Oh my God. How did you stay awake? I, I get in there full, like a, you know, midnight to 6 or midnight to 8 a.m. And after the 14th uh, Tommy Dorsey song came on, <laughs> I was luggage. And I need the Wu Ginsburg was my boss. And he shortly thereafter relieved me of my duties. But I had a great time there. And I had to open the door for guests coming onto Maddie's show if I was doing the front desk. And I'd sit in the with the jocks overnight in the in the like Lisa Lips was, uh, she was a sweetheart and she was relegated to uh, overnights and uh, Ed McMahon and uh, JJ Wright and uh, Kid David and just hang out there and the and sit and talk with them. Vinnie Peruzzi. Um, God, what names? Yeah, and uh, I just felt like I was a part of like I just had been just parachuted into into my radio into my own radio. I'm I'm here with legends. Said so I'd open the door for all of Maddie's guests, and Dick Doherty came in to be on Maddie's show to talk about his new comedy club he was opening up. So I just introduced myself to him. I loved comedy, um, and I said my parents used to go see you all the time uh, when you when they were dating and first married. And of course, 
now I realize someone is older. When someone says, oh, my parents hung around with you, I'm like, man, I'm really old. <laughs> but Dick said, uh, how would you like to work in my club? And I said, yeah, in a heartbeat I'd work there. Um, and Hank Morse was, he got me the job at, at KISS. And then Hank and I end up working here at Lightships, uh, the boat. And I was, you know, I, he's like, first time I saw live comedy was in 1986, my junior year at Catholic Memorial at Nick's Comedy Stop. Uh, and it was Kevin Knox, DJ Hazard, and Don Gavin, who we grew up on the same street in West Roxbury, but I didn't know him, but I knew he was a legend already. And, um, and it was, uh, and Steve Sweeney came off the street and did a guest set. And me and my buddy Gary Diomedi, who's still one of my best friends to this day, we love comedy. We have never forgotten that night. And that changed us forever. Just to see that live uh, in front of, you know, these, I mean, pe- these madmen just making people. I've never laughed so hard before in my life. And so Gary and I, every date for the next four years, we'd go to Nick's Comedy Stop. We'd cut, we'd take, you know, two girls to Nick's Comedy Stop. There'd be four of us. And we'd, before that, we'd cut the $4 off coupons off in the Herald. <laughs> and the, the girls would go up to the desk and we'd say, well, no, we'll go. And I said, no, no, you, you ladies wait here. We didn't want them to see us, that we were getting reduced prices with the coupons. So we could afford, you know, the $2 beers <laughs> that were in there, right? <laughs> so it was like every first day, because you really got to know somebody as opposed to a movie. You got really got to know what their likes were and dislikes were from watching a from watching a comedy show. What so the bug were. the bug bit you. Oh yeah, I mean I was my father would my parents would always encourage me to watch comedy. You know I'd watch Mash with my father. I mean every single episode probably fifteen times. Um, Are your parents still alive? Or? My dad passed away six years ago. Uh, my mom's still alive. Uh, but they would always, uh, they'd always encourage it. Like they had a Steve Martin album. They used to have parties down in their converted garage with shag carpeting, you know, these 70s parties with people. And of course, I wasn't allowed to be up there. Did they I, have the Red Fox party records? They had Red Fox. Uh, <laughs> they, had, uh, they had Steve Martin was the one that, you know, but I wasn't allowed to listen to it because it swears on them. Yeah, well, that was what I was going to explain. Yeah, the Red Fox party records for those listening, you know, maybe those in our Czechoslovakian audience, as an example, Red Fox was this uh, filthy African-American comedian, and he put these records out that pretty much laid everything out there. They were like dirty secrets that were done underground, weren't they? They really were, and, uh, you know, he was a legend at the, at the comedy store, and every time I go to the comedy he's Red Fox is one of the, the four neon faces in the comedy store in the main room at the comedy store. And uh, in a lot of ways, he was he was kind of like um, he had this persona on television, but this I mean, dirty, filthy, but funny, off you know, on stage at a, at a private club, kind of like you know the recently deceased Bob Saget. Saget, you know, is a you know dad persona, and then he'd make you go into see him at a comedy club, he'd make your hair curl. You had Bob at your club a few times, didn't you? I never did produce a Bob Saget show. I met him a few times, just a, just in passing. Really uh, good person. In fact, I just had a couple of comedians in at Laugh Boston who were really good friends with him, and uh, and you know, telling great stories about him and his generosity, and just really uh, had friends wherever he went, but made time for people. Not a diva quality about him. He actually liked being famous. He enjoyed that. 
It's you know. His death touched a, a lot of people, obviously, because of the suddenness of it, for sure. And, uh, you know, all the joy that he brought to so many people, right? Yeah, he brought a lot of joy. And that's, he brought a lot of joy to people. That's, to me, that's what comedians do, is they bring joy to people. You think about going to a comedy club and you get a tough job, uh, maybe you get a tough family situation, maybe a medical issue, the kids are bothering you, but you go out and you just... You watch this comic on stage, and they make your problems go away for an hour and a half, two hours. It's and that's an amazing thing. Now, were your parents funny, or are you? Your mom's still alive. Yeah, my so. my they were in different ways. My father was a really uh, on the on the construction site was really the the prank guy, and you know, uh, but he could bag himself. He was a big guy. I'm not. Um, my mother, but I was my as a little kid. My mother is ten years younger than my father. Um, she loved puns, and so we do the pun thing back and forth, and you know. Go, but I was, I was, I was born on August thirty first, so I made my grade by literally fourteen hours. My mother always wished she kept me back, cause every grade I was in until I was a senior in high school, I was the smallest, the shortest, the tiniest. So my defense mechanism against bullies and people was humor, was fending them off with jokes and humor. You know, uh, most often time that worked, but. Sometimes it <laughs> didn't work, but but I used it. That was kind of my that was my defense uh, thing. So back to the ship. So did you do the door at the ship? I did the door. I sat people, and then a couple weeks in, Dick calls me up. He says, uh, "I'd like you to start introducing the comics." <laughs> what? And so it was a Saturday night. It's gonna be my first night introducing the comics. Of course, I told my parents, and I still lived at home. I was like 21, and and so. I went out and bought a, I, go, I can still see it, like a powder blue blazer, right? <laughs> and new pants and a new shirt. It's all, I mean, I think the, sh- I think the shirt and the blazer came in the same package with each other. And <laughs> I get up, and my, my parents came, and a couple of my aunts and uncles came. So here I am taking money from people, and there's no credit card, it's all cash, and I, that I'm seating people. It sat about 100 people, maybe. And it was a beautiful room because it looked right out over here over the boats and the harbor. It was great. The Intercontinental wasn't here. None of this was here. So it just had a kind of a wide view of, you know, downtown Boston. And uh, so I, now it's showtime. My heart is beating out of my chest. It's, it is beating out of my chest. And I get up on stage and I grab the microphone. And I'm, I'm so nervous. I'm holding onto the back curtain with my hand. <laughs> and I heard two things. I heard uh, my Aunt Mary was deceased now say oh look at him he's adorable I hear that before I even get a word out of my mouth That's and awesome. then and then a guy on my left says to no one probably to his wife or to his he says is this the kid who just sat us you know like just petrified that I'm gonna go up and start doing comedy you know so I just had to go up and introduce the comics and I, I couldn't get off that stage quick enough did you do some some jokes though I mean no as, as I got more comfortable through the years at clubs you go up and Dick could have you go up in between the, the feature and the headliner and promote the dinner and show package. So you throw in your little jokes here and there, you know, and you get booed. But I, I, I love telling jokes, and sometimes I'm my own best audience. I love when people don't laugh. Yeah. I find that to be hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> There's something crazy about it. Yeah, I think it's great. Yeah. yeah. But so you never, even though you had this... Uh, and still do obviously this incredible appreciation for 
for comedy and the bug bit you, but you never really set your sights truly to be a stand-up and make a living that way, right? Oh, God, no. I couldn't even... Because I just, at an early age, realized how hard these people worked. Like, just... You know, they might be at light ships one night, but the next night they're driving the headliner up to, you know, Bangor, Maine for gas money. You know, to get five minutes on stage or ten minutes on stage. It just seemed to me like, what an incredible amount of work to make... To, to realize their dream and to make it happen. So, and to me, it's like being the door person. I was right there and I got to work with different people every single night and it was secure. Yeah. I got the same pay regardless. And, you know, um, of course, back in those days and, you know, in the early 90s in Boston, there was always a concern. It was a, it was a jump ball whether your car would still be across the street. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was probably my biggest concern, yeah. you know. Uh, but, you know, so you're working with working with Gavin and Sweeney and um, uh, there were certain guys who wouldn't work for Dick whatever for whatever the reason but Mike Donovan and Frank Santarelli and then you get this whole you know you get the people who just had just left Boston and, and you know Mark Marin and, and Nick DiPaolo in the in the late 80s you know to go to New York and but then this new crop of people came in uh, Bill Burr Patrice O'Neill Greg Fitzsimmons uh, Kerry Louise it just this whole list of these people came in, and now they're some of the best comedi- comedians in the in the country. Yeah. But they learned the Boston way. So why though Boston uh, as such a hub of comedy? I mean, is it is it the misery that the inhabitants have to go through on a regular basis with traffic and weather conditions? So is it all of that that drove this uh, appetite and drives this appetite for comedy? What is it about the psyche? Uh, I think it's all those things. I think it's the weather, it's the politics. It was, you know, before, before the advent of Boston sports, you know, 20 years ago, it was the sports teams, the misery, and, you know, the lovable losers, and just down to the dumps. There was a gigantic, I believe, strongly believe, until the, Yankee, until the Red Sox beat the Yankees in 04, that there was a gigantic inferiority complex in Boston about New York. Sure. That has since dissipated, yeah. I think, in a larger good because of the success of the sports teams, which is so funny. But there's a, people love to complain. And also, traditionally in the city, that there were people from big families. In order to be heard, you had to speak up. There you go. You know? And, but it's also a thing, you think you're, a, you think you're, you're something else in a big family, a big Irish or Italian family, um, a, a big African-American family. You think, you're, you think you're something big, and no one will cut you down quicker. Than your own siblings or your parents. You think you're, you may be a big shot on the outside, but you come down, it's like, past the gravy. It's like, we're not, you know, you're, you're down to their level and like, there's no superiority, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, now, it's, a good, it's a good check on people. Oh, certainly, it still is. Yep. So, um, I moved here in the early 90s, so was this, uh, this big monstrosity, this hood monstrosity, uh, was it here? And, and describe that for people. It was. It was not in the, not in the condition it's in today. It was like, it was peeling away. It's kind of like the, <laughs> it's kind of like the Sitco sign of the, uh, <laughs> of the harbor <laughs> in a lot of ways, <laughs> right? No, the Sitco sign was not in good shape. Yeah. It was not well lit up. The you know, bulbs were out. Nobody cared, you know? And then all of a sudden it became this, you know, this thing, this thing. And the milk bottle. I, I guarantee you, if they announced that they were going to remove the milk bottle, there'd be a protest down here. About 500 people chaining themselves to it. We'd be lined up. You'd be lined up. You're not taking a milk bottle away I'd from us. I'd be here. Yeah, of course. That's <laughs> ours. I, I would know? be here. I'd probably, 
just given its history, I probably would be too, you know? Yeah, you'd probably buy it, bring it yeah, over I to would, Apple, Yeah, Austin. yeah, exactly. That's what you'd probably do. If, if Dick was still running comedy clubs, he'd have a club inside there, yeah. you know? <laughs> That's really funny. Oh, that is, that is beautiful. So, uh, just going back a second, so you did the radio stuff. Was radio something, because I know you're a big fan of radio to Love this radio. day. So, um, was radio ever something you really thought of as a career? And, and, and then how did you wise up? <laughs> Yeah, well, I was wisened up. I'm, you know, I, I love radio. You know, listen to, used to listen to WITS and Glenn Woodway and Cliff and Claff and Dr. Joy Brothers and some shows I probably shouldn't have been listening to. And but I just love that medium and just listen to radio. And uh, I'd listen to I, overnight. I'd listen to, uh, to to Norm Nathan speaking to you live from the plush but not overly ostentatious studios of, <laughs> yeah. of WBZ and. It was, it was so, and then Stephen Wright would stop into his show overnight, just pop in. Stephen Wright come by the Norm Nathan show from two to three o'clock in the morning, yeah. just riffing and talking, and so I just loved it. Uh, so I decided, in the middle of my uh, nine-year journey through uh, UMass Boston, I decided to. I was just paying as I went and working part-time jobs, and uh, it was an interesting time in my life. And I, I so I just, I uh, was just kind of meandering through, and so I decided to go to broadcasting school. Uh, Dick Robinson, the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Wellesley Hills. <laughs> and so I went and so I actually, Jordan Rich was one of my uh, instructors and I'm still in touch with Jordan to this day. Um, but everybody there, they said, they said I was pretty good. I didn't know how to cut tape, you know, you do the grease pencil and the thing. I never really mastered that. Um, my father was a construction worker and I inherited exactly none of his skills. <laughs> right, I have like a I have like a mallet and some masking tape in my toolbox, you know, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. More than I have. So. Yeah, but I was good, yeah, I was, I was, I guess I was pretty good on the air and could do the talk up to the record and, um, and do the news and stuff like that, but they told me, they said, John, you, you know, your accent is, you're gonna change that thing. It was kind of like Rudolph with his red nose, you know, <laughs> just sort of like, you could do something, but, you know, as I think we said, you know, your first job, you gotta go up to cover eighth grade girls volleyball, you know, up in Augusta, Maine. You know, and how am I? Who, no one's going to understand me. Right. You know, who's going to get a translator? Yeah, and I'm just, you know, and I, I remember, you know, back in TV, you know, back in the '70s, and you know, the reason why they say Carson and perhaps even Letterman, I mean, in addition to being hilariously funny and talented, but they were not threatening. They they had that kind of midwestern, middle of the road dialect that people from Topeka wouldn't be upset about. It was yeah. that middle of the road as opposed to, you know, later years, you know, as you get that kind of whichever coast, you know, kind of. Uh, dialect, you yeah. know, but it was important back then. It was important back then. That's why I thought Eddie Inman was so groundbreaking. I listened to Sports Huddle every Sunday night from you know six to ten, and I tape it. I put my tape recorder there up to go. it. Yep. And but those guys, Eddie, Mark, and Jim, they were Boston guys, and that show was. I think they were having drinks at a bar one night, and someone discovered them. They ended up on WBZ first, um, and then and then HDH, and but they just. They just, you know, but that wasn't working for me. So, um, so it's like, but then I just by chance, Hank dated, Hank Morse dated a girl from West Roxbury, Sherry Squante. She worked at DeSalle's clothing store with a girl named Trish Rowan. Trish was my girlfriend. It was next to Steve Slines Deli. I worked there. And Sherry said she dating this guy, Hank Morse. I said, Hank Morse? I know Hank Morse from Kiss 108. <laughs> so when I met Hank, it was like I was meeting a celebrity. And He's the best. He is awesome, and he he, he could run for mayor of Medford tonight. Oh, yeah. and win in a in a recall election if he wanted to. Oh yeah. Um, 
so he hooked me up. He said, I'll, I'll hook you up with an interview. And uh, he got me an interview with uh, Lisa Fell, who was Billy Costner's wife at the time, and got the job and reported Annie Win- the Wu Ginsburg. I mean, when I told my father, first, my, my parents were very skeptical about the broadcasting school, you know? Yeah. They wanted me to go work for utility. Just go get a good job. Get a stable get job. Get a job at the gas Johnny, company. get a stable job. I would have lasted with a jackhammer on the middle of the street. And yeah. I, I, so much respect for those people who do that stuff. I mean, my father, you know, like, I wouldn't have lasted five minutes doing what he did for work. Uh, or my mother did does for work still. She's a daycare provider to this day. Uh, but I, you know, I... So they were skeptical about it, but when, when I told them I was working for, that Andy the Wolf Ginsburg was my boss, their eyes lit up. Couldn't believe you it. know what? And yeah. He's the Wolfman Jack of Boston. Oh and yeah. So then when I parlayed that into getting the job at the comedy club for Dick Doherty, now I've become someone in my parents' eyes. There you know, you I've arrived. It's that moment. I've arrived. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So take us through what got you to here. There's so many interesting paths and you know still interesting paths that you've taken so walk us through where those took you and how it got here well i you know growing up in mattapan uh, every other person was an elected official and the other half were always running against them so it was always an election going on my parents weren't weren't involved in politics even though they were friends with all these they never ran for office so uh, but they'd work on campaigns and let me work on campaigns so i've been delivering flyers and holding signs for people since i was six my parents were foster parents, uh, probably had 30 different kids in a house over the course of 30 years. My youngest brother, Patrick, was abandoned by uh, his teenage parents in 1976 in South Boston. It was a highly high-profile case in Boston. He ended up coming to our house, and our family ended up adopting him. So that was their kind of form of public service. But I wanted to be mayor of Boston. That's what I wanted to do. Um, but I loved, I also loved comedy growing up, and I loved the politics, and started working in the state house, and... Um, and I was working at KISS. I was interning at the State House. And so, uh, so I start working in the clubs, help start the Boston Comedy Festival. When I'm 25, I run for city council, district city council, against a 14-year incumbent. And uh, I, I came in second. There were five of us in the race. I get into the final uh, with her, and I lost. I came in second. But I, I wasn't too upset because I figured I was still working at the State House. I had my comedy job. And I kind of, even though I wanted to win, I was probably a little bit too young and uh, didn't have the life experience that voters are looking for at the time. And so I uh, worked a couple more years in the state house, and um, then ended up at a private company, more to balance myself off on the business side of things, just so I had that experience. No one's going to run again. Run for city council again in 1999. I'm still working at clubs and managing clubs. You know, um, after light chips, I. Ran a place for Dick up in the end of the Grill 93. And then they sent me out to Worcester to the Aku Aku, which I will write a book about someday, but I need about 15 more people to die. And uh, I, I, uh, I run in 99 against now the 16-year incumbent, uh, 18-year incumbent at the time. And five of us in the race, I get in the final with her. We think we have her, and she beat me again. I was devastated. I was really... And now I've lost twice for the seat. You know, I'm barely 30, and I'm like, oh, man. And I don't want to become, like, a Harold Stassen, like, perennial. I'm, I'm on the precipice of this happening. So I end up out in uh, in 2000. I'm working at Catholic Memorial. My alma mater is the uh, development director. Go out to L.A. to with uh, to 
comedy festival stuff, end up at a party. We have an off night, end up at a party. There's a bunch of girls living out there from Boston and meet this girl, uh, Kate, and she's from Milton. Uh, so we kind of hit it off. Went to a comedy show at the Improv. And while I'm out there in California, I get word that the incumbent is leaving to run for another seat. I was never going to beat her. So I fly home early. Uh, and I said, I sit down with my parents. And, and my father actually said to me, who was my biggest supporter. I mean, he'd hold, he'd make, he made all my signs by hand. And he'd be out ducking donuts with me at 530 in the morning. And he said, John... It's probably, probably not your time. I said, what do you mean it's not my time? I said, I've just run twice and lost. And he said, yeah, but this kid, there was already a guy in the race way ahead. He, you know, I said, I feel like I got to do it. But I also knew in the back of my mind if I lost, you know, if I had lost that race, I would be running, you know, a building complex in Tallahassee right now. My life would have been completely different. Completely, yeah. And we end up, we lost the preliminary. Came in second, we crushed and we ended up turning around in the next six weeks. We got some political gods that visited us and um, so won that race and, you know, continued, became a Boston City Councilor, continued, you know, booking comedy. Tom Merriman, you know, was so good to me personally, professionally, not at the beginning, but he loved sneak. He loved comedy. We talked comedy all the time and then I'd bring in big comedians to do, like, give them the key to the city. I mean, you know, you know I brought in uh, uh, Dane Cook. We gave him a key to the city one time. Norm Crosby who was a sweetheart of a man. You know, he's from Boston. His wife's from Boston. He came back, and we treated him like gold. Menino would give them gold cufflinks. Vin DeBona from uh, America's Funniest Home Videos. and So it was kind of my entree to Menino. Loved that stuff. And the mayor, I remember, too, uh, Lorna Wally fan as well. Yeah, he yeah. did old Lorna Wally, Lorna Wally Day. And, oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, he was, he was a really good guy. And then when I told him, I, was, I opened up a comedy club with Frank Ahern, uh, who has since passed away, on Warrington Street, up the street from Nick's, in the old Comedy Connection, mm-hmm. um, and uh, in the in the room in between Shared Madness and Blue Man Group, and we called it Tommy's. I think Tom Benito thought I was naming it after him, oh, but I was sweet. named after Thomas Wignell, who was the first known comedian in the in the country. Wow! And uh, I, all the old time comedians would give me crap and say, you know, the hell's Tommy? I said, well, who the hell's Nick? You know, from Nick's Comedy right. Stop, right? So, about six months after we opened. Uh, Frank had a stroke. Frank O'Hearn had a stroke, and we thought he was gone. He was, he was on, you know, in a coma for a few months. And at the time, Nick's Comedy Stop called me down the street, and they said, why don't you run our club, too? So now I'm running two clubs, and neither one is doing particularly well. And I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So Frank came out of the coma, was in a rehab facility down in Situate. This is 2010, and I tell him that, uh, I said, Frank, I'm going to mothball Tommy's until you get better. Let me concentrate on Nick's because that's the one that's only that's making some bit of money here. Yep. And he agreed with it. Uh, I then announce, then I get the job at Northeastern. I was recruited to come to Northeastern and leave the council. Because I, w- I wanted to run for mayor, but Mayor Menino is as good as he was to me. He wasn't about to tell me his plans. Right. And my boys were two and four at the time. And I'm like, how much can I? I could run and I could win, or I could run and I could lose. And then what's going to happen? I've kind of. So I went to Northeastern, and I've been there ever since. It's been a great experience, but I've always continued running the clubs. But in, Frank passed away uh, two days before I started at Northeastern. So we didn't reopen Tommy's. We concentrated on Nick's. And then uh, the guys from the Improv Asylum, who I knew from my work on the city council, I was chair of arts and humanities, they came to me and 
said, let's look down the seaport. At that time, the only thing down here really was the, the Moakley Courthouse and, right. you know, the last remnants of Pier 4. Right. When my parents took me for my 8th grade graduation gift. That was my gift really? from graduating 8th grade was to go to Pier 4. Uh, so I, so we walked around in the seaport. It was rainy January day, like an 11 or 12, and we didn't. We had no broker with us. We we actually went into the Western, went over the footbridge to the World Trade Center, went into the Western to stay warm. The Western was relatively new, and but I knew there was an MJ O'Connor's down the way, and so went down to go open. It was closed. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning. There was a gray door next to it. We opened it up. It was unlocked, and it's a whole shell. We're like, what is this? There's all this space. And long story short, that ended up becoming Laugh Boston. Uh, but I, Tom Menino, on opening night at Tommy's, came to my opening night and spoke at it. And if we're not for Tom Menino, uh, Laugh Boston doesn't open on time because we were cash strapped. We ran into some, you know, overruns with construction like you always do. There were event, liquor vendors taking their product off trucks and weren't going to deliver it. Tom Menino made that night happen. So the opening night of, of Laugh Boston, it's a packed house, family and friends. We got Tom Menino in the back. I asked him to come to be the first person on stage. So I, no one knows he's there. And I said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you know, we'd get through our you know, things. And I said, uh, can't think of anybody better to open up this club than... Uh, the best Tom Menino impersonator there is. So everybody assumes it's going to be Sweeney. Right. Oh, that's brilliant. And out comes and, and the mayor wasn't doing well. He was failing, you know, but right. he wasn't, you know. And he came out on the stage, and I swear to God, the place, the roof came off the place. Wow. The place exploded, gave him a standing ovation. It was one of the, it was one of the nicest things I've ever seen. And it was just so, you know. So he was, um, he was, a, you know, a big part of things and really encouraged me sure. as well. And, you know, Kept, it was another way to keep another oar in the water. I mean, a lot of elected officials are, are attorneys or, yep. you know, you know, I was probably the only elected official that's a comedy booker. But it enabled me to, you know, to, you know, God forbid, I used to tell some of my colleagues who give me crap about it, good-natured. You know, you're not a full-time city councilor. Well, I certainly was. But I said, look, at, you can, we think we walk on water in our districts. We could lose the next election. You know, our mortgage company still wants the money on the first of the month. You're yeah. still going to provide to your family. You need something to to go. And that's the way I've always thought of it. You know, no job is secure, you know, forever. And you just need backup and another skill and something. So, Black Boston opens up and it just opened up this whole world to, you know, to nat- put us on a national map in terms of bookers and agents and things like that. But something we really had to work hard at. Uh, but it's opened up, you know, so many the other clubs and Foxborough and it, it at MGM at the casino and I just think I tell everybody every young kid to just say, open the door you never know we opened that gray door at, but we opened the door at Tommy's we did it at Nick's if I don't I open up Tommy's Nick's doesn't happen and if Nick's doesn't happen laugh guys don't come along and if laugh doesn't happen then all these other clubs in Massachusetts don't happen and then if you don't put yourself out there and network you know out there then Plano Texas doesn't happen and Detroit doesn't happen, and potentially Louisville and Pittsburgh. And then people just are calling out of the woodwork, you know, and then we're booking these one-nighters at theaters and tents and things like that. And I think what kind of regarded our company, what we built up is kind of the go-to people uh, in terms of comedy. And I'm really lucky, you know. And to, you know well, That's <laughs> awesome. We were talking, too, uh, before we started uh, to take a walk 
about our mutual friend Skinny Vinny O'Neill, who was episode four, actually, of Taking a Walk. And Vinny, in that episode, talks about how Taking a Walk is one of those wonderful things because it produces these, you know, serendipitous moments. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, you know, your metaphor of opening doors is really about those, you know, serendipitous moments, right? For sure. Opening the doors, taking a chance. Uh, I tell my own boys. My boys are 15 and 16 now. And my son is, my oldest son is the, uh, they're different guys, you know, and, but my oldest son is the more reserved, you know, and quiet and a little bit more hesitant on things. And he was a student manager of the football team last year. He was a pretty good athlete, but not a CM football player, but he became the student manager for the, they were like a, they could beat division three teams, Catholic Memorial. And, you know, he didn't, he was thinking about quitting last summer. So my wife and I had a conversation. We sat him down and said, Matthew, stick with it this team is going to win championships they're potentially playing in ireland next year and you walk into college with that experience and knowing these people i say you're going to be playing you're you're working with guys right now who are going to be division one college athletes and potentially in the nfl that opens up so many different windows for you down the road these relationships it's all about relationships um and he finally came to his senses and he did it and you know three weeks ago you get measured for a super bowl ring right so it just just Getting out there, as Tony V says, Tony V says his best advice for young comics is, well, you're not going to get better sitting on your couch watching Murder, She Wrote, having Doritos. <laughs> right. The only way you're going to get better is being out in the clubs and being on stage. And I tell comedians, people who want to do it, is starting out, even if you're not going to be on stage that night, come to the club, hang out, don't be a pain in the neck, but you never know when you're going to get called on. Be prepared, be ready, uh, keep on writing and working, and you'll get your shot. Because you stick around long enough, they just can't possibly say no to you anymore. Right. Right? And it's just sort of, but it's just getting out there in the world. Yeah. And, you know, not being a hermit. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, yeah. You know yeah. it's, it's important. It's important, you know. And I think the people I've worked with in comedy and the relationships and this, there's people from Boston all over the country. All over the country. And it helps enormously. Sure. You know, that you can be connected in Los Angeles or, you know, it, all over the world. I mean, I went to a trip to Turkey 20 years ago with a group of under 40s. There was this nonpartisan group that went out to Turkey, to Turkey, and uh, we'd go into these meetings, and and they they'd go around the horn to introduce yourself. We met with every mayor and governor and, and cotton mill person in, in in Turkey, in Ankara, in Istanbul, and Shanlufa. Every single person went to Boston University. So we do the round the horn, where you people, one guy was from Kansas City, one guy was from Kentucky, one woman was from San Francisco, another woman from Virginia. And I'd say Boston, and their eyes would light up, and we'd talk about Boston for a half hour, to the point where the kid, Jamie Como, who's now a congressman from Kentucky, uh, we get out in the car on the third day, he says, hey, John, can you do me a favor? I said, what's that? And he said, can you stop saying you're from Boston? Because <laughs> you're holding up every meeting by 30 minutes. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> like, I you love know, it. and we went into went into some place in some you know church or some palace, of, and two guys, uh, you know, a, a couple from the South End, come out of it. They recognize me as a city councilor. People are like, "This is in Turkey, right?" It just happens. It, it's a Boston thing. Yeah, uh, which it's is really which is which is thing. which is really great. Yeah. Well, we are very grateful that we're here in Boston. 
I'm grateful to be taking a walk uh, with you and hearing your story and hearing about that ship that is no longer here, but I could actually see it as you describe it as we're taking a walk. So. Uh, it, was, it was such a great, memorable time and met so many great people. Some of them I'm still friends with. We, and then at the end of the night, we'd go hit golf balls off the, the deck over that way. <laughs> and every once in a while, you hear a window break, not for any of my shots, but uh, it was, I, I think I told you, it, the, first, uh, the first two weeks I worked there, I didn't, I thought it was a replica of a boat. I didn't think it was an actual boat. And so until I realized, you know, yeah. I'm a little late to the party sometimes, you know, sometimes I'd walk down into work and then, other, and then the same night I'd walk up out of work and I'm like, oh, it really is in the water. <laughs> So, oh my god I'm, I'm glad I didn't get into physics or uh, math and I'm more in the entertainment and you know government relations uh, positions I'm in well we are all grateful we're grateful for the laughs we're grateful for what you bring to the community and all your great work and this is one of the joys of taking a walk being able to catch up with you and hear the story so thank you for your time I'm grateful for this opportunity I'm grateful to be from Boston taking a walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.